Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners, and welcome to a special Thanksgiving edition of the Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland, your host. Gobble, gobble. (laughs) So on this special episode, we are going to talk about a story one of our reporters covering the 2020 election turned in a few weeks ago. It's looking into a kind of brand new political breed that we're seeing on the campaign trail this year for the first time, and that is the potential first husband. Former First Lady Laura Bush says the first gentleman shouldn't be treated any differently than his predecessors. Are we too obsessed with your hair, your makeup, your clothes? Yes. Okay. For sure. What's your advice for the first gentleman? Stand for the first, back and first be gentleman. quiet. <laughs> Yeah, there have been a, a few in the past, and, and one in particular who happened to be a former president. What's Bill going to be called? The first husband? And what's, what, yeah, what, or first grandpa, first pop pop? What's he going to be called? Well, I mean, we really should run kind of a contest um, because some people have said, obviously, first gentleman. That uh-huh. kind of fits. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Others have said first mate. Which I thought was kind of. I like that. Sounds but this is the first time that we're really seeing a large group of potential first gentlemen out on the trail because, of course, we're seeing a large group of women running for president for the first time. Uh, national political reporter Elena Schneider. Hey, Scott. Interviewed a bunch of them, talked to uh, the candidates about how their campaigns are deploying uh, their husbands and all the gender dynamics that have gone into the planning and the thinking about that and the the history of this sort of thing, of which there's not much, but there's some. And Elena, this is a story that you and I had actually been talking about for like half a year, basically, uh, up to up to publishing it a few weeks ago. Yeah, and I think even before the context of us talking about it in terms of the presidential husbands, we even talked about it when I was out spending time with Abigail Spanberger, and she talked about how she had conversations with voters about what her family was like and what her husband was doing in terms of taking care of the kids, and so suddenly sort of thinking about what these these women who, you know, five women who are running for president, how they were going to have those sorts of conversations. So we've been talking about this forever. And it's been something that I've been collecting thread on for months because of that. And it sort of really got kicked off, though, with a conversation in March with Senator Amy Klobuchar. We're sitting in the lobby of the Cedar Rapids Marriott, and I had about a half an hour with her, and there were a whole host of other things that we wanted to talk about for other stories. But at the end of the conversation, I popped in a question about her husband and about the experience of running for president and and being a woman, but also having this, you know, having a husband who's a private citizen private citizen and how do you sort of incorporate him or not into this campaign that she was starting to run. And she actually shared this really interesting story about what it was like when she was running for um, around the time that she was in uh, a Hennepin County prosecutor. And this local Minneapolis TV station wanted to come in and tape her uh, getting ready in the morning. And she realized that she did not want to have them there because that would mean that viewers would see that she didn't make her daughter's peanut butter sandwiches in the morning. And what that would say about her as a mom balancing her responsibilities as this county prosecutor, which is obviously an enormous job 
with also being a mom. And I think it sort of speaks to, and she even in, in the moment laughed, well, that was 20 years ago, and now I don't care. And Elena, can you just walk through who are, uh, who are these people, you know, kind of briefly, and what kind of stuff have they been doing on the campaign trail to support their spouses? Okay, so let's walk through all of them. So first, Bruce Mann, who is married to Senator Elizabeth Warren, and he's a Harvard professor, Harvard law professor and legal historian. John Bessler, husband to Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota, another law professor. I, I think you're seeing a trend here. Then we've got Doug Emhoff, who's the husband of Senator Kamala Harris, a lawyer, <laughs> slightly different. And then you've got uh, two more who are not in the legal profession, Chastin Buttigieg, who's the husband of Pete Buttigieg, and obviously we're including him even though um, he's he's married to a man, which obviously is a whole other historical implications there. Um, and he's a, he's a teacher. And Abraham Williamson, who is married to uh, Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard, who's a cinematographer. And uh, it's important to note also that there was a sixth husband who was involved in this uh, in this Democratic presidential primary before his wife chose to drop out in late August. That was Senator Kirsten Gillibrand of New York. Her husband, Jonathan Gillibrand, uh, is a venture capitalist sort of in the finance world. But again, um, he was sort of a little more in the background and, and is now since the two of them, she's no longer running, no longer sort of included in this conversation of husbands. Well, yeah. And, you know, by the time Gillibrand dropped out of the presidential race, we still weren't seeing a lot of the these these 2020 husbands uh, getting super involved in like public events, interviews, that sort of thing. Uh, it's really picked up more in the fall, it seemed like. Yeah, and it sort of goes to even our conversation way back in, in in the early part of this year where we started talking about it, but we were like, wait, we haven't even really seen them yet. So we had to sort of wait until these these campaign husbands had to sort of get rolled out a little bit and sort of get introduced to the public before we could sort of examine how they were being handled. And look, I, I spoke to a number of these presidential campaigns, top staffers on those campaigns as to why that happened, sort of why we saw this ramp up in the fall. And a number of them acknowledged, look, we didn't want can't, you know, we didn't want voters to get to know the, the the husbands before they even got to know their wives, who are the candidates, who are the people that you actually do need to know, because those are the people who are running for president. So there was certainly an awareness that they needed to be careful about their schedules, that they weren't getting ahead of themselves, that that voters knew the candidate who were the women, um, or in Pete Buttigieg's case, Pete Buttigieg, before they got to know their husbands. And Campaigns don't know what voters want to see from them, and in fact, are a little potential, a little nervous about what um, these roles might mean because it's sort of we don't know yet. Yeah, I mean, like the only uh, big example of of a uh, male spouse on the presidential campaign trail in, in a really big way so far also happened to be a former president. Right. So it's a little, it's a little. No. Sort of like apples to, you know, car batteries. Like there's no comparison <laughs> here in terms of having these, um, you know, having Bill Clinton, somebody who was so well known, so familiar, especially within the Democratic primary electorate um, versus these five private citizens. And and so now as we're heading into the fall, after about six months, you know, seven, eight months of campaigning, we're starting to see these husbands pop up more and more, in part because now there is a certain amount of urgency around the candidate schedule. So once we head into the fall, there's there's a need for these candidates to sort of be every, ed, everywhere at all times. And by including somebody like a husband, that's somebody who can then serve as a surrogate for you, basically the next best thing to having a candidate. And we've seen these campaigns start to use these husbands in more um, – 
in, in bigger ways sort of to try as a multiplier, trying to use these these husbands as a way to sort of, you know, if you've got Kamala Harris in Iowa, you can have Doug Emhoff headlining for her in, in Nevada. If you've got Pete Buttigieg uh, opening offices in New Hampshire, you can have Chastin Buttigieg fundraising for him in Europe. Uh, so it's sort of a way for these campaigns to try and use as many of these sort of surrogates as possible. And and often the, the spouse of whoever the candidate is is the best person to do that because they know them, uh, obviously, not only as as somebody who they want to support, but also very personally and can sort of speak to who they are as a human being. Mm-hmm. And something pretty interesting that you found in the in the story is that all the, all the husbands are trying to figure out this as well. And they're kind of trying to figure it out together in, in a lot of uh, situations. There are some friendships that have popped up between them on the trail. So Chastin Bouges and Doug Emhoff are sort of the best example of this. They are sort of the most public facing of all the husbands have really sort of built social media followings in their own right online. And they both, uh, it's sort of, um, they didn't come down on who slid into whom's DMs, but there was some DM <laughs> sliding going on. And they got to know each other pretty early on, traded phone numbers, have struck up sort of this friendship, hang out with each other around events. Because look, a lot of these husbands join their spouses, their candidate, you know, the candidates on the trail. And so they end up hanging out in a lot of green rooms together. So Chaston told me this story about how he and Doug Emhoff were, were in a green room together and really sort of got a little deep with each other and shared what it was like to be away from this person that they love the most and watch them go through this and also trying to negotiate what where they fit. And that struggle is one that um, I find really fascinating and I think sort of gives us a window into what this role is going to look like for the next 100 years because we're going to have a lot more women running for president, a lot more women running for governor. And these men are really at the forefront of figuring out what that playbook is going to look like. What voters want to see from them. Yeah. And uh, Elena, you mentioned the the concerns that some of the campaigns had just about making sure that voters met their candidate before they met the husband. And uh, this, I mean, they're they're coming at this from a place uh, not of paranoia, but from experience. I mean, you talked to the husband of the first ever female governor of Michigan, who who said basically that there was there was this problem that that when he was kind of out there and being seen, some voters would kind of assume, oh, you're in charge. We should talk to you. That's right. I got Dan Mulhern on the phone, who's the husband of Jennifer Granholm, who was the first female governor of Michigan, two-term governor of Michigan. And he he explained to me what it was like to be in this position where voters would question or, uh, or other um, – officials would question who was really in charge. This very nefarious, um, dark sort of side of what this is, what this could potentially be like for these presidential candidates, where people are basically going to question who's really in charge. That, you know, uh, you know, sure, Jennifer Granholm is the governor, but really who's pulling the strings behind the scenes. He was appalled by that. He said it was a really difficult experience that no one would, um, you know, if you, if you, in his words, sort of, if you met his wife, you would never question who was really in charge um, and who was the candidate in that, in that situation but that it was a reality that they had to deal with. And look, I spoke with Kelly Dittmar, who studies women in politics at Rutgers University, and she too brought up the question of what happened, you know, traditionally female spouses, sort of this role that we're so familiar with, the first lady often is brought in as sort of humanizing force, that these first ladies and spouses of candidates sort of 
provide a really positive glow around their husband. I think one of the phrases she used was they're used to like reflect the power Exactly. Of, of the husband. And it's just not clear yet whether or not the same will be true for women. We don't even have enough case studies to really know what that looks like because the best sort of next level down example of this would be governors, but only 3%, 3% of our governors in all of American history have been women. And so that's a very small sample size in terms of comparing what it might be like to see a female in an executive role and how the husband can help or hinder that. And and Shabis and Kelly and other academics have sort of questioned, we just don't know yet. And it could, in fact, have some negative ramifications, as Dan Mulhern sort of laid out for us, which is that there's the potential that people question whether or not she's really in charge and and whether or not the husband is basically there to remind people that this person is a woman. And that's a really complicated thing for these campaigns to to figure out because you both want to acknowledge uh, the reality that they have this husband, but is there a risk in making them too big of a part of the picture? Yeah, it's interesting, especially given that story you told at the beginning about Amy Klobuchar reflecting on the last 20 years and just how much more comfortable she feels as a woman running for office. Uh, and and yet how, how there are still so many... Uh, barriers and uncertainties uh, about about this as, as we see so many women running for president now? Look, I think we're going to have a lot more answers as to what it's like to run for president as a woman after this cycle is over. Uh, we'll have a lot more data to work off of. But even right now, we're still seeing this come up, this question come up in all kinds of different ways. I mean, take Amy Klobuchar, most recent comments ahead of the November debate where she questioned whether or not Pete Buttigieg would even be on that stage if he was a woman. I'm focusing here on my fellow women senators of Senator Harris, Senator Warren and myself. Do I think that we would be standing on that stage if we had the experience that he had? No, I don't. Maybe we're held to a different standard. Based on his credentials, which is just simply being a mayor of a town of about 100,000 people. And Look, she was asked about that in the debate. She sort of nodded at, you know, saying, you know, Pete, you're qualified to be here. Um, But then, again, sort of, you know, brought up this question of women are held to a different standard. First of all, um, I've made very clear I think that Pete is qualified to be up on this stage, and I am honored to be standing next to him. But... What I said was true. Women are held to a higher standard. Otherwise, we could play a game called name your favorite woman president, which we can't do because it has all been men. Um, And appealed to working women who are watching that debate and said, you know, any working woman out there understands that. Any woman that's at home knows exactly what I mean. And look, the the Democratic Party leans heavily female. And I think that there are plenty of people who who, with whom that resonated. And then she pointed to Nancy Pelosi as as somebody who has proven that you can take on this president as a female politician. But I, I do think it sort of speaks to this larger conversation that all these candidates are having to sort of hint at, like Amy Klobuchar, except that wasn't really hinting, it was very explicitly talking about it, whereas others maybe don't want to. And instead, simply, look, several of these husbands that I spoke to, when I asked them about sort of the history-making quality of this moment, would pivot back to their wives and say simply, this is not about me, this is about my my wife, and the, and, and I'm here to support her and, and the remarkable things that she's trying to do. So I think that everyone is trying to 
figure it out in real time. And that is a challenge. And we haven't seen any sort of big missteps or blowups around that. But I think that we, you know, if, if there's going to be a female presidential nominee again, it's going to, and even some of the presidential campaign staffers who I spoke to hinted at this, that the general election is going to be an entirely different situation where uh, Donald Trump is, is undoubtedly going to lean into um, some potentially some sexist tropes around these female candidates and how they handle their husbands. It's going to present a whole new fresh set of challenges for them. And it's going to be fascinating to watch that. That's what I thought was so interesting about your story. It wasn't just, hey, look at these men who are out there. It was it was about this this experience of running for president while female and like how that's evolving and and everything that's going into it. I thought it was fascinating. Thanks for thanks for coming to chat about it. Thanks for having me. And as always, a big thank you to all of you listening to this episode. Our producer is Annie Reese with an assist from Jenny Ahmet. Bill Cookman is our illustrator. If you like the Nerdcast and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Once again, thank you so much for listening. We'll be back with a regular Nerdcast next week.